Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. I actually grew up in public radio. I've been in the field since I was 16. And from the start, I was taught to offer people content that will inform and enlighten. This podcast is dedicated to spreading ideas that speak to the highest part of our listeners rather than lowest common denominator. If you like what you hear, we're asking for your help. Please leave us a kind review on iTunes so others can find us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston. Support for this special series, Passengers, is provided by the American Public Transportation Association at publictransportation.org. We cannot keep going from shock when gas prices go up to trance when they go back down. We go back to doing the same things we've been doing until the next time there's a price spike and then we're shocked again. The challenge of reducing dependence on petroleum while maintaining our ability to travel. You're listening to Passengers, a special series from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. From the early days of America's railroads to the motorways, subways, and airports of our current century, transportation of people and goods has provided an economic engine and a means of linking a vast nation together. President Dwight Eisenhower, October 1954. We are pushing ahead with a great road program, a road program that will take this nation out of its antiquated shackles of secondary roads all over this country and give us the types of highways that we need for this great mass of voter here. President Eisenhower spoke from Cadillac Square in Detroit. The interstate highway system he championed was authorized by Congress in 1956 with substantial backing of the automobile industry. Over the decades, the system has grown to some 46,000 miles of roadway, facilitating commerce as well as military mobility. But now, a half century later, a strong bipartisan consensus has emerged that America's transportation infrastructure is in dire need of repair. Faced with overcrowded highways, increased ridership on mass transit, and crumbling bridges, how will America pay for the overhaul? To get our fiscal house in order, we need to cut spending, balance the budget, pay down the debt, and shrink the deficit. But I know the American public is willing to make some sacrifices now so we can make a brighter and better future for our children and grandchildren tomorrow. U.S. Representative Sam Johnson, Republican of Texas, voicing a core conservative belief that government, especially in Washington, is recklessly overspending, ballooning the federal debt, and sticking taxpayers with the tab. But Larry Hanley, a former New York bus driver and now president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, has a different view of America's deficit. The impact of spending tremendous amounts of money on a war, uh, we're borrowing money from China and everywhere else in order to fund the war and to fund tax cuts for rich people, and allowing for uh, the export of our jobs, the result being, for example, in, in Detroit and throughout Michigan, auto workers have, have lost their jobs. Now, a solution to that could be 
that you could fund not only the operating side of mass transit to keep it running, but also redirect capital spending to start building more bus and rail vehicles and improving mass transit, driving the economy um, by putting people in the old auto industry back to work in existing auto plants that are now dormant. You could retool those plants as they did in World War II so that they could produce buses and trains. And in recent years, the array of transportation choices and challenges facing the United States has grown even more complex. The Transocean Deepwater Horizon rig caught fire, had an explosion, and ultimately a day and a half later sank. After sinking, we used remote operated vehicles to examine the wellhead area. BP executive Doug Suttles, following the April 2010 Gulf of Mexico tragedy in which 11 crewmen were killed in the fireball. The resulting oil spill became the largest in U.S. history, gushing an estimated 50,000 barrels a day and lasting nearly three months. Oil polluted water, fouled coastlines, and harmed wildlife through a large swath of the Gulf Coast, a region where fishing and tourism normally flourish. And America's dependence on oil presents problems that are not confined to the United States. For example, the Fifth Fleet is in Bahrain specifically to protect the water transport of oil. Ross Capon in Washington is president of the National Association of Railroad Passengers. And uh, when you consider what's going on in the Middle East, it's not too far-fetched to suggest that we could see a huge spike in gasoline prices, which will make us regret the fact that we've been so slow to rebalance the equation in favor of public transportation. There was a huge spike on Amtrak ridership in 2008 when the gasoline prices went up And you're seeing that again now, but they're basically at their limit. And uh, they've got a relatively small number of new cars on order, which are going to take a couple years to come. The 2008 surge in public transit use occurred nationwide and notched a five-decade high in ridership, but has fluctuated since in part because increased unemployment has meant fewer people riding to work. In the Great Recession, many local transit systems, relying on cash-strapped state and municipal governments, watched their revenues dwindle. M.P. Carter is a board member and former chair of the Memphis Area Transit Authority. A large portion of our service had to be cut because we didn't have the funding for it. And uh, it's a real dichotomy because this is a time in which we have greater ridership. We have more people who are willing to experience the bus but we don't have the service. We had to cut it because we, didn't, we couldn't pay for it. In all regions of the United States, transit systems have laid off workers, reduced routes, and raised fares. And M.P. Carter says those affected are populations that need public transit most. We are talking here about uh, students who go to school via uh, public transit, uh, senior citizens uh, who no longer drive, uh, citizens with disabilities who don't drive, and then there are those who are Uh, low-income, who cannot afford uh, cars. For those people who do take public transportation on a regular basis, it is very important because mobility is so important to one's opportunities for all kinds of things that make life a quality life.
flashpoint in the conflict between mass transit and government budget belt tightening occurred in New Jersey in 2010, when Republican Governor Chris Christie canceled a long-planned rail tunnel under the Hudson River. It could have doubled commuter train service along the congested route between his state and Manhattan. The budget was $8.7 billion, of which the local Port Authority and the federal government had pledged more than two-thirds, but Governor Christie feared cost overruns. What the proponents of this plan are asking me to do, on behalf of the citizens of the state, is to hand them over a blank check. I simply will not do that to the people of the state of New Jersey. This is how we got ourselves into the third highest debt load in America. This decision is final. Christie's supporters praised what they saw as his fiscal prudence, but critics dismissed the decision as tunnel vision, likely to compound traffic delays in the region. In the debate over whether to enhance America's mass transit capacity, high-speed rail has emerged as a graphic symbol. Well-established throughout Europe, China, and Japan, these bullet trains shuttle riders at speeds ranging from 150 to sometimes as high as 300 miles per hour. A proposed route between San Francisco and Los Angeles would take two hours and 40 minutes. The Obama administration allocated $8 billion of the 2009 stimulus funding to high-speed and other rail programs. But Tea Party-backed Republican governors in Ohio, Wisconsin, and Florida declined billions in federal support for planned rail projects. The decisions to turn down high-speed rail were decisions in favor of big oil, increasing our dependence on oil, Uh, threatening our coast with more offshore drilling to supply an addiction to oil. Ann Mesnikoff of the Sierra Club's green transportation campaign. It was a huge mistake to turn down those dollars and fail to invest and create the jobs today that will invest in a transportation choice that will allow people to get from city to city, city center to city center, and feed into transit options once they get there oil-free. An example of interlinked public transit is here at Amtrak's 30th Street Station in Philadelphia, first opened in 1933. Travelers can connect to commuter rail and buses. Supported by tall pillars, the building houses a large cavernous lobby with Art Deco lights hanging from a grand patterned ceiling. The concourse is frequented by pigeons as well as thousands of rail passengers each day. At this key stop between New York and Washington, along Amtrak's popular Northeast Corridor. All right, thank you so much. We're right on down. Champagne, caviar, Coors Light, shrimp. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right, good afternoon. Have a nice trip. A jovial ticket taker welcomes riders to the escalator, which will convey them downstairs to the platform. They will shortly board an early afternoon train running slightly late today en route to New York, then New England. It's Amtrak's Excella service, a rail experience offering sleek, clean cars, electric outlets, and Internet connectivity. It also cuts travel time from conventional trains and has attracted a large following among business travelers. I chatted with a passenger in the dining car. Uh, Could you tell me why you decided to travel on the Excella today? Uh, Convenience. Where are you going to? New York. From? D.C. You have 
other choices could have driven, could have flown. Why the train? Um, I'm able to get work done while I'm on the train. It's just, it's convenient, it's comfortable. I can do it on my schedule. There's always a train going to and from, so I can pretty much work within my schedule. You find that that would be harder to do if you were, say, to have flown from D.C. to New York? Oh, yeah, definitely, because then you've got to deal with security, and it's just here you just show up, get on, open up the laptop, and you're good to go. And you've got a good dining car. <laughs> well, let's get our priorities straight then, right? <laughs> exactly. So, may I ask what you do? I'm in sales. Although the slow economy temporarily depressed business travel, Excella ridership resumed growing in late 2009, consistent with the overall increase in Amtrak passengers through most of the last decade. It's enjoyable. It's relaxing. It's, you know, you do have, depending on where you're traveling to, you do have the countryside. I enjoy it. I mean, other than the convenience of it, it's, it's nice to sometimes just stare out the window. <laughs> I've always been enraptured by the railroad, watching marshy landscapes, small towns, and water views pass by as we sojourn up the East Coast. Although some stretches of the track permit speeds of 150 miles per hour, the train to Boston averages about half that, just the right pace for gazing at the scenery, reading or writing, and contemplation as the train clatters northward along the seaboard. Traveling with my colleagues, and they were coming from different places. And we were meeting in Philadelphia at another meeting to get up to New York. So, this is a way we can all kind of sit and work together and chat together before a meeting in New York. Can I ask what you do for a living? I'm a principal in an investment banking firm. I've been traveling these rails for 25 years, and I don't, I think, particularly the um, the Acellas and the Metroliners and the business class of the regular trains have been a, has been a way for business people, athletes, senators, Joe Biden, to travel up and down. I think they could have a way better physical car, better rolling stock, um, and obviously better tracks and so on and so forth. It's never been as good as it could be, but um, for what it is, it's fine. It, it, you know, if they had eight cylinders, they're using four of them. They could be a way better service. But I'm not knocking it. it it's, you know, it's, it's efficient. Um, but, you know, for the prices they're charging, it's not as good as it could be. You're listening to Passengers, a documentary project about public transportation from humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on Passengers, including links to studies, videos, historical documents, and information about transit in your area, please visit our website, humanmedia.org. Having lived in Orlando for 11 years, I know how, how bad the public transportation system is here. Um, a lot of people uh, can't get around. I don't think there's much of a debate amongst local citizens in Orlando about how how much need there is for improvement among for public transportation in the city. Brett Pribble is a 30-year-old English teacher who grew up in western Florida and later moved to Orlando. He has a car but would prefer to use public transit more if the system could get him to destinations more efficiently. Florida is is growing every single year and the primary means of 
commute between the major cities is Interstate 4. And at rush hour, you can be trapped on Interstate 4 for, for over an hour, just sitting in traffic. And it's because the, the, amount of highway, the amount of roads simply cannot accommodate the amount of cars. And as the state continues to grow, this is going to become more and more and more of a problem. And if we were to have a high-speed rail that connected Orlando to Tampa, that would clear up a lot of that traffic, not to mention be good for the environment because you wouldn't have all those carbon emissions. A high-speed line along the 85-mile stretch between Orlando, home of Disney World, and Tampa has been debated for years. Florida voters have both approved then repealed plans for the service. Brett Pribble was hopeful the line would finally be built when moderate Republican Governor Charlie Crist lobbied hard for the project. Federal pledges ultimately reached $2.4 billion, which would have brought in 92 percent of the budget. But his conservative successor, Governor Rick Scott, stopped the train. Government has become addicted to spending beyond its means, and we cannot continue this flawed policy. Capital cost overruns from the project could put Florida taxpayers on the hook for an additional $3 billion. The truth is that this project would be far too costly to taxpayers, and I believe the risk far outweighs the benefits. The New York Times editorialized against Governor Scott's decision, pointing out that businesses had guaranteed to absorb any cost overruns and accusing Scott of pandering to his Tea Party backers. Brett Pribble had organized a rally through his Facebook page in support of the rail project. I feel extremely disappointed, um, especially showing that this would run a surplus within the first year, um, especially driving down I-4, being stuck in traffic, um, especially wanting to see the city grow and becoming more like the modern metropolis it could be, wanting to see the state um, come into the 21st century. I mean, high-speed rail is utilized all over Europe and Asia, and for us to reject it, I think, is is putting uh, the state and, to a lesser extent, the country at a disadvantage. About 18 miles north of Orlando, up Interstate 4 in Heathrow, Florida, Bob Darbelnay, national president of the AAA, had called on Governor Scott to avoid making a precipitous pullout of the rail project. Even though we uh, are the American Automobile Association, or AAA, uh, that doesn't mean that we are solely focused on the automobile. Uh, To the contrary, I take the view that our role is to ensure that we do everything possible to make it easy and safe for our members to get from where they are to where they want to be through the mode of transportation of their choice. As a result, uh, we support transit uh, and transit solutions. And you've mentioned in some public statements a concern about traffic congestion as one reason why uh, the AAA would support high-speed rail. Given those concerns, uh, should the direction of national public policy in the United States be to reduce the number of cars on the road? Well, I don't know whether uh, the policy ought to be to seek to reduce the number of automobiles, uh, but I certainly uh, would agree that the policy ought to be designed to ensure that the traveling public has a range of options. And if, in fact, uh, we provided uh, people like you or me with uh, better options for public transit, Many of us would elect to use that uh, in circumstances where today our only choice is to take our automobile. 
So if the policy were uh, focused on providing people with more options, uh, I believe that most consumers, most uh, travelers would make the smart choice uh, and it would probably translate into fewer cars. There are steps individuals can take on their own to reduce traffic congestion and pollution. One method is carpooling, in which people who lack access to public transit or prefer not to use it ride in a car with at least one other passenger. And it could have a big impact on traffic jams and emissions since nine of ten drivers now are riding alone. But carpooling in America has actually declined by half since 1980, according to the Census Bureau. Another method that is gaining in popularity is car-sharing services, like iGo in Chicago, where Sharon Fagan is CEO. What car-sharing is really about is shifting from thinking about the automobile as, you know, reflecting who you are, to thinking about the automobile as a utility. And so that's the shift that has gone on and as car sharing has become more and more popular. So I am not my car? <laughs> you are not your car. You are who you are. And, uh, you know, a car is just one more thing that will help you in your daily life. iGo is a nonprofit service. It owns a fleet of about 250 cars parked in reserve spaces at convenient neighborhood locations throughout Chicago. Some 15,000 members sign up to rent use of a car, sometimes for just a couple of hours for an errand. Rates vary, but hourly fees are around $7, and in most plans, there's no additional charge for the first 150 miles. What car sharing is about is actually getting people to increase their biking, their walking, their transit use, and having access to a car when they need it so they don't have to go out and buy it. And with car sharing, in some cases, it means a reduction from two cars to one car, or maybe it's even three cars to two cars, or it's one car to zero cars. So with iGo Car Sharing, we're a nonprofit. We uh, promote transit-oriented car sharing. So we really see ourselves as an extension of the public transit system. Surveys among iGo members show that 73% decide either to sell a car or postpone buying one because car sharing reduces their auto dependence. Bob Darbonnet, national president of the AAA. If we think about the issue of congestion and what we can do to make your life and my life simpler when we're trying to get from A to B, we certainly can uh, do more, in my view, in terms of offering safe, reliable, and affordable transit solutions. So it's a combination, really, of uh, more solutions around transit and alternative forms of transportation, more capacity for those of us who need to use our automobile, um, and uh, frankly, there's probably also an opportunity to improve the efficiency of what we already have without necessarily pouring more concrete. Transportation planners point to technology as one answer. Congestion can be eased by meters at highway on-ramps to regulate traffic flow and electronic sensors that can signal where parking spaces are available, thus cutting down on drivers who circle repeatedly to find a spot. And telecommuting can make a difference when people avoid the rush hour commute because they're working at home. 
A recent study by the Federal Transit Administration calculated that 29% of the nation's public transportation resources are in marginal or poor condition, and that working through the backlog and bringing train and bus systems up to a state of good repair would cost more than $77 billion. Richard Rodriguez runs public transportation in the Chicago area. The reality is that the Chicago Transit Authority is over 100 years old. We've got a massive uh, system uh, with infrastructure that that's, that's that old. It takes a lot to maintain it. And we're currently about $10 billion um, short of getting to a state of good repair. Now, this does not mean a brand new system throughout. It's just a state of good repair. It's just making sure that people's heads stay dry. And so America must make choices among competing needs to keep roadways safe for cars and to improve public transit resources that reduce traffic congestion and pollution. A major source of federal dollars is the Highway Trust Fund, supported by the gasoline tax motorists pay at the pump. The current tax stands at 18 cents per gallon, far lower than in most other nations, and a level unchanged since 1993. Bob Darbelnay of the AAA. We're certainly not opposed to uh, more funding for transit. I would question whether it is legitimate to ask that those funds come entirely from uh, the uh, people who are driving automobiles. But would you favor a higher share than is currently the case for transit from the Highway Trust Fund? I don't think we would. Uh, in fact, uh, frankly, I think we um, have found our way to accepting that uh, as an automobile owner and driver, you are going to uh, see only 80 cents uh, on every dollar you put in coming back to you as it relates to the use of the vehicle uh, that triggers the, the cost, um, and that 20% of it is being used for, for transit. Doesn't the current 20% redound to the benefit of the motorists yes. in relieving traffic Ab congestion absolutely. by people who use transit rather than their cars? Yes, absolutely, and I think that's how we found our way to uh, viewing that as a good thing. Uh, it's perhaps been appropriate to the world in which we used to live. Roy Keenitz is Undersecretary of Transportation. But that's not the world really in which we live anymore. Transit ridership is at all-time highs. Driving, not. Peaked in 2007, and it's down a couple percent. You know, in, in the old world, the amount of driving increased every year, and the other modes, be it walking, biking, or public transportation, struggled to, to stay uh, on pace. And now that, that, that has changed. And so our view is let's spend our money in a way which reinforces that trend. For residents of communities with mass transit options available, people are giving new thought to how they travel. Gas prices, environmental concerns, and the headaches of commuting have prompted some passengers to reduce their dependence on automobiles. Ethan Pollack is an analyst at the Economic Policy Institute in Washington. You know, I ended up getting out of my car when I actually, I actually ended up totaling it um, <laughs> in um, in the um, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and when I when I was living there, and uh, you know, couldn't afford a, a car, so I, and I was very reliant on public transportation. And at first, there's the withdrawal effect. You know, when when you don't have a, a car, all of a sudden everything seems so far away, and all of a sudden you you can't you can't drive 30 miles just on a whim. Oh my God, and you you feel restricted. But eventually, you start discovering more where you live. And you start discovering more kind of the areas around. You get more creative in how you're going to get to the grocery store. You start carpooling and start then, you know, 
Um, you know, so you're going as a group then. Um, so there's, you start at first the addiction, you know, the, the withdrawal from the addiction is very strong and it's very difficult. Um, if you have public transportation, then you still have mobility to, to go elsewhere. But there's something about the car that is, you know, it's, it's almost like the, um, it's almost like the ring from Lord of the Rings, you know, it, it gives you this, this, this amazing power, but at the same time, it ends up, you end up realizing how much you're just spending time in your car by yourself. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg, studio recording by Antonio Oliard, associate producer Mike Jansen. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal, Kathy Graham, Fred Yant, and Art Cohen. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Dave Kanzig, Daryl Snodgrass, and Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shard Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Part 4 of Passengers, is Humankind Program number 164. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.